Chapter 19 of The Suffragette, The History of the Women's Militant Suffrage Movement by E. Sylvia Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 19. June and July 1909. The Ninth Woman's Parliament. Attempt to insist on the constitutional right of petition as secured by the Bill of Rights. Arrest of Mrs. Pankhurst and the Honorable Mrs. Haverfield. Miss Wallace Dunlop and the Hunger Strike. The Fourteen Hunger Strikers in the Punishment Cells. Mr. Gladstone charges Miss Garnet with having bitten a wardress. Her acquittal. When the authorities had first raised the threat of punishing women under the Statute 13, Charles II, for proceeding to Parliament in a body of more than twelve persons, with the object of presenting a petition to the Prime Minister, the suffragettes had decided to defy the statute. We were indignant at the proposal to enforce against us in the supposed free and enlightened days of the twentieth century a coercive law passed in a bygone time of great upheaval and of great tyranny. Moreover, the police authorities had stated that if tried under this statute of Charles II, these suffragette cases must be decided by a judge and jury instead of being hustled through the police court. Deputation after deputation of more than twelve women had therefore gone forth, but though these women had again and again been seized and imprisoned for periods as long as that prescribed by that act, the authorities still did not charge them under the act of Charles II. At last, as the seriousness of the whole position grew, our committee decided that it would be wisest to comply with the very letter of the law and to stand on the constitutional right of the subject to petition the Prime Minister as the seat of power. We were advised that the right of petition, which had been to some extent limited by the act of Charles II, had existed from time immemorial. It had been confirmed by the Bill of Rights which became law in 1689 at the beginning of the joint reigns of William and Mary as one of the securities for the liberties of the British people, the complete preservation of which had been a condition of the accession of that king and queen. The Bill of Rights declares that, it is the right of the subject to petition the king and all commitments and prosecutions for such petitioning are illegal. As the power of the king had now for all practical purposes passed into the hands of Parliament, the Prime Minister, as the chief parliamentary official, had become the king's representative, and therefore the right to petition the Prime Minister clearly belonged to each and every member of the community. This right, though it should always be zealously guarded, is of course most essential in the case of persons placed outside of the pale of the franchise. A ninth woman's parliament having been called, Mrs. Pankhurst wrote to Mr. Asquith, stating that a deputation from the woman's parliament would wait upon him at the House of Commons at eight o'clock on the evening of June twenty-ninth. She informed him further that the deputation could accept no refusal, and must insist upon their constitutional right to be received. The Prime Minister returned a formal refusal to receive them, but the woman proceeded with their arrangements. On Tuesday, June 21st, exactly a week before the day fixed for the Women's Parliament, Miss Wallace Dunlop visited the House of Commons with a gentleman who left her, and went on into the lobby to interview a member of Parliament. She passed into St. Stephen's Hall, and sitting down on one of the seats there, unfolded a large block covered with printer's ink. She was pressing this block to the stone wall when a policeman rushed up and dragged her hurriedly away, but there remained displayed upon the wall the words, Women's Deputation, June twenty-ninth, Bill of Rights. It is the right of the subject to petition the king and all commitments and prosecutions for such petitioning are illegal. Miss Wallace Dunlop was taken to the police inspector's office opening out of the palace yard, but after an impression of her notice had been solemnly made on a sheet of blotting paper, she was allowed to go.
she had been pulled away too speedily to look at her own handiwork in St. Stephen's Hall, and the policeman told her that it was only a smudge. Two days later, therefore, she set out to make a second attempt to stamp on the wall of St. Stephen's her reminder to Parliament that the people's liberties must not be violated. She was able to carefully affix her notice before a policeman appeared, but she was not to be let off this time. On June 22nd, she was tried for willfully and maliciously damaging the stonework of the House of Commons. She urged in her defense that any damage which she had caused by affixing the notice was entirely outweighed by the great constitutional issue which it had been her intention to impress upon the members of the House of Commons. It is claimed by the prosecution, she said, that it cost ten shillings to erase the impression of the first notice, and that it will cost probably a similar sum to wipe out the second. It seems to me that it would have been better if the authorities had spent no money at all but had let the impression stay. She was found guilty in order to pay a fine of five pounds and one pound, one shilling, two pence damages, or in default to undergo one month's imprisonment in the third division without hard labor. Meanwhile, very great interest had been aroused in the attempt of the suffragettes to force the Prime Minister to receive them by constitutional means. There was keen discussion as to what would happen, and when the fateful Tuesday came, vast throngs of people, greater perhaps than at any other demonstration, lined the streets in the neighborhood of Parliament. In the House of Commons itself there was a strong feeling that the deputation should be received, and this was expressed at question time by many members. Mr. Keir Hardy asked the Speaker whether it was by his instructions that a deputation of eight or nine ladies was to be prohibited from entering the House, but Mr. Speaker replied that this was the first he had heard of it, and that he had issued no instructions. When the same question was put to the Home Secretary, he also answered, I gave no instructions, and declared that it was the police who had the responsibility of keeping the approaches of the House open. Mr. Hugh Law asked leave to move the adjournment of the House on a matter of urgent public importance, namely, the refusal of the Prime Minister to receive the deputation and the consequent grave and immediate danger to the public peace, but the Speaker refused, saying that the question had been before the House for at least two years. Mr. Keir Hardy then asked if the Home Secretary would give instructions that so long as the deputation was orderly, it should be admitted to St. Stephen's, but Mr. Gladstone refused to accept responsibility, saying, I cannot say what action will be right or wrong for the police to take. At half-past seven, the Women's Parliament met, and a petition to the Prime Minister having been adopted, Mrs. Pankhurst, Mrs. Saul Solomon of South Africa, Miss Nelligan, who from 1874 to 1901 had been headmistress of the Croydon Girls' School and was now 76, and five other women were duly appointed to present it straightway. Then Miss Vera Holm was dispatched on horseback, with an advance letter announcing the deputation was about to appear. With all possible speed she rode on, forging her way through the masses of people, until close to the house itself she was met by a body of mounted police who demanded her business. She handed the letter for Mr. Asquith to the inspector, but he merely flung it on the ground where it was lost to sight amongst the crowd. Note 35 Meanwhile, the little deputation of eight women were preparing to leave the Caxton Hall, and the woman's drum and fife band ranged up the steps was playing out to them the Marseillaise. The shrill, shrill notes of the fife were a call to battle. The heart beat quicker in unison with that drumming, and the breath came hard and short. On the deputation went whilst the cheers of their comrades mingled with the deeper answering cheer of the crowd outside. On they went up Victoria Street, and all the way from the masses who watched them was heard no single cry against them, nothing but one great cheer. They pressed on, 
first Mrs. Pankhurst in her light coat, then the two little old ladies and the other woman following behind, but just at the corner of St. Margaret's Church a long line of police on horse and foot blocked the road. For a moment there was a strange pause, and the crowd was hushed. Then the police lines opened, and the deputation passed through to the clear space around the house. The crowd cheered, and they were lost to sight. Everyone believed that the women were to be received. But St. Stephen's was closely guarded by police, and as the deputation reached it, Chief Inspector Scantlebury stepped forward and handed a letter to Mrs. Pankhurst. She opened it and read aloud, the Prime Minister, for the reasons which he has already given in a written reply to their requests, regrets that he is unable to receive the proposed deputation. Then she let the missive fall to the ground and said, I stand upon my right as a subject of the King to petition the Prime Minister. I am firmly resolved to stand here until I am received. But even whilst she was speaking, Inspector Scandlebury turned away. He would not wait to hear her statement. She called to him to stay and pleaded with the bystanders, members of Parliament and others, to bring him back to listen, but he disappeared through the door of the stranger's entrance. Then Mrs. Pankhurst turned to Inspector Jarvis, appealing to him or to anyone to take her message to the Prime Minister, but she was merely told to go away. "'I absolutely refuse,' she said, and the other ladies chimed in. "'We absolutely support Miss Pankhurst.' At that, whilst the rows of members of Parliament policemen and newspaper reporters looked on with interest, Inspector Jarvis seized Mrs. Pankhurst by the arm and began to push her away. There was no hope now that the deputation would be received, and she well knew that if the women persisted in their demand to enter the house they would be arrested in the end. For the sake of their cause, neither she nor they could ever consent voluntarily to retrace their steps. They must refuse to go, and when, as they would be, they were forced rudely back, they must return again and again until they could do so no longer because they had been placed under arrest. This would mean a hard and a long struggle, for the police would first try every other means to overcome them. She knew that in a moment the violence would begin, and that the frail old ladies behind her would be hustled and jostled and thrust ignominiously aside. And so, not for herself, for she had borne this sort of thing before, but to save these older women from ill-usage, she committed a technical assault on Inspector Jarvis, striking him lightly on the cheek with her open hand. As she did so, he said, I know why you have done that. But one blow was not enough, for the police began to seize the other women, and the pushing and hustling began. Then she said, Must I do it again? And Inspector Jarvis answered, Yes. At that she struck him again on the other cheek, and he said, Take them in, and the eight women were placed under arrest and led away. Meanwhile the people outside the police lines had waited patiently until at last the news filtered through that the deputation had not been received. Then suddenly a woman was seen struggling through the crowd bearing the colors. Cheers were raised at the sight, and the policemen rushed towards her. This was the signal for a general attempt on the part of the suffragettes to reach the House of Commons, and in ever-recurring batches of twelve, that only too soon were to be torn asunder, the woman bravely but hopelessly pressed on, whilst more than it had ever done before the crowd showed a disposition to help them and to prevent their arrest. But Parliament went on as though nothing were happening, and when a man in the central lobby suddenly shouted, "'The women of England are clamouring outside!' He was at once seized by numbers of bystanders and police and bundled through the door. 
Then tranquillity reigned once more. It turned out that the interrupter was Mr. Lawrence Houseman, the well-known writer and artist. At nine o'clock a great force of mounted police cleared the square, beating the people back into Victoria Street, into Parliament Street, across Westminster Bridge or along Millbank. It was a familiar stratagem, and as on so many other similar occasions, Parliament Square was soon a desert. But now a strange thing happened, for little groups of women, six or seven at a time, kept issuing from no one knew where, and making determined rushes for the house. As a matter of fact, the WSPU had hired thirty different offices in the square for that night, and in these offices women lay concealed and dashed out at preconcerted moments. Whilst this was happening in the square, other suffragettes succeeded in carrying out a time-honored means of showing political contempt by breaking the windows of the official residence of the First Lord of the Admiralty and of the Home Office, the Privy Council Office, and the Treasury Offices in Whitehall. Having gone just after dusk, when the lights are lit in rooms where people are, they chose windows on the ground floor that were still dark. Then, to small stones around which were wrapped petitions, they tied string, and holding fast to the end of the string, they struck the stones against the windows, and having thus made holes, dropped them through. So they accomplished their purpose without the risk of injuring anyone. One hundred and eight women were at last taken into custody. Long accounts of the affair appeared in the press next morning, and these were on the whole very much more favorable to the women than any that had gone before, as the following gleanings from some of the papers indicate. The record of these attempted raids has been one of remarkable persistency in the face of every possible discouragement from the authorities. Daily Telegraph The same paper also published a humorous pen-and-ink drawing of a mounted policeman, four constables, and an inspector marching off to prison the tiny figure of Miss Nelligan with the inscription, Seventy-nine years old. Liberal treatment. It is the most successful effort that the militant section of the party have made. However much one may deplore their methods, one cannot overlook their earnestness. They are out to win. The Scotsman Principle and tact alike are wanting in the Asquith administration, otherwise there would have been none of the suffragette scenes in today's police court, and none of the tumult and expense of last night. No one supposes for a moment that such a large and influential body as the suffragettes would have been denied a hearing by Mr. Asquith and his colleagues had it possessed voting power. The Manchester Courier it is not likely that any one of the thousands of men and women who saw the suffragist deputation to Mr. Asquith to the House of Commons on Tuesday night will ever forget the scene, much as he or she may wish to do so. There are some things which photograph themselves indelibly on the sensitive plate of the brain, and that was one of them. East Anglican Daily Times The Prime Minister has shockingly mismanaged the business from the beginning. Yorkshire Weekly Post there is some concern amongst liberals at the Prime Minister's persistent refusal to receive a deputation from the suffragists. They doubt if he is wise in showing so unyielding an attitude to them. Manchester Daily Dispatch As the deputation of women had complied with the very letter of the law, the WSPU determined to prove, if possible, that the government had broken the law in refusing to allow them to present their petition. Mr. Henley was retained to deal with the legal aspect of the case, and he pressed home his contention with so many forceful arguments that when he had finished, Mr. Musket, who was conducting the case for the prosecution, asked to be allowed time to prepare an answer. When the case was continued on Friday, July 9th, a sensation was created by the discovery that Lord Robert Cecil had been retained to defend the case of Mrs. Haverfield, upon which all the others hung. 
Mr. Musket now began by suggesting that the woman had had no intention of presenting a petition and that the claim that they had gone to the House of Commons, in the endeavour to do so, was an afterthought, got up for the purposes of the defence. He was soon obliged to abandon this line of attack for the speeches and articles of the leaders, the leaflets published by them, and the official letters of the WSPU to Mr. Asquith, together with the fact that each member of the deputation had carried a copy of the petition clearly demonstrated the absurdity of this contention. The whole case as to the right of petition and of the way in which that right should be exercised was then discussed, first by Mr. Muscat and then by Lord Robert Cecil. Afterwards, Mrs. Pankhurst quietly told her own story of the happenings on June twenty-ninth. In conclusion, she said to Sir Albert de Rutzen, I want to say to you here, standing on this dock, that if you deal with us as you have dealt with other women on similar occasions, the same experience will be gone through. We shall refuse to agree to be bound over because we cannot in honor consent to such a course, and we shall go to prison to suffer whatever awaits us there. But in future, we shall refuse to conform any longer to the regulations of the prison. There are one hundred eight of us here today, and just as we have thought it our duty to defy the police in the streets, so when we get into prison, as we are political prisoners, we shall do our very best to bring back into the twentieth century the treatment of political prisoners, which was thought right in the case of William Cobbett and other political offenders of his time. Then, looking rather pained and blinking his eyes very nervously, the amiable-looking elderly magistrate proceeded to give his decision. He said that whilst he agreed with Lord Robert Cecil and Mr. Henley, that the right of petition clearly belonged to every subject, he yet thought that when the police had refused permission to enter the house, and when the Prime Minister had said that he would not receive the deputation, the women had acted wrongly in refusing to go away. He should therefore fine them five pounds, and if they refused to pay, should send them to prison for one month in the second division. This punishment should not take immediate effect because he understood he was desired to state a case upon the legal point as to the right of petition, and as he was quite prepared to do this, the matter would be taken to a higher court for further consideration. Mrs. Pankhurst then claimed that the charges against every one of her fellow prisoners should be held over until her own case had been finally decided, as they all turned on the same point. This was agreed to, except in regard to the fourteen women charged with stone-throwing and attempted rescue, who on Monday, July 12th, were tried and sent to prison for periods varying from one month to six weeks. And now the evening paper placards were announcing a strange thing that had been taken place in Holloway Jail. Miss Wallace Dunlop, who had gone alone to prison, had set herself to wrest from the government the political treatment which her comrades demanded, and had seized upon a terrible but most powerful means of attaining her object. On arriving in prison on Friday evening, July 2nd, she had at once claimed to be treated as a political offender, and when this had been denied, she warned the governor that she would refuse to eat anything until she had gained her point. On Monday morning she put her breakfast aside, untasted, and addressed a petition to Mr. Gladstone explaining that she had adopted this course as a matter of principle, and for the sake of those who might come after. Miss Wallace Dunlop has not the vigor and reserve force that belong to youth, and she is a fragile constitution, but she never wavered and went cheerfully on with her terrible task. Every effort was made to break down her resolution. The ordinary prison diet was no longer placed before her, but such dainty food as at other times is not seen in Holloway, and this was left in her cell both day and night, in the hope that she would be tempted to eat, but though her table was always covered, she touched nothing. Tuesday was the day on which she felt most hungry, and then, as she says, 
I threw a fried fish, four slices of bread, three bananas, and a cup of hot milk out of the window. Threats and coaxing alike failed to move her. The doctor, watching her growing weakness with concern, came to feel her pulse many times during the day, but her calm, steadfast spirit and gentle gaiety never deserted her. She had always a smile for him. "'What are you going to have for dinner today?' he would ask, and she would reply, "'My determination.' "'Indigestible stuff, but tough, no doubt,' he would answer. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday passed. By Friday it was clearly realized that she would not change her mind, but would carry on her hunger strike even to the gates of death. Hourly she was growing more feeble, and so on Friday evening, July ninth, she was set free.' The fourteen women who had been sentenced on the day of her release and heard the news of what she had done as they were being hurried to jail decided to follow her example. On reaching Holloway, they at once informed the officials that they would refuse to deliver up any of their private property, to undress and to put on the prison clothing, to obey the rule of silence, to perform prison tasks, and to eat the prison food, and that in every way that was open to them they would protest against the regulations. The governor agreed for the time being to allow them to retain their own clothing, but told them that when the visiting magistrates next came round they would be charged before them with mutiny. The women then addressed petitions to the Home Secretary, demanding that, in accordance with international custom, they should receive the treatment due to political prisoners, and decided to wait a day or two for a reply before beginning the hunger strike. These suffragettes had always condemned the inadequate ventilation of the cells which they felt to be exceedingly injurious to the health of every prisoner. On those burning summer days the stifling heat became almost unbearable, and after several times appealing that more fresh air should be allowed to them, the women at last determined to break some of the panes. On Wednesday morning Christabel and Mrs. Took, anxious for news of their comrades, went up to Holloway and obtained admittance to a house opposite the jail. There, from a back window, they called to the prisoners, who eagerly stretched out their arms to them through the broken panes, and in a few shouted words told them of what had taken place. The same afternoon, a committee of visiting magistrates arrived in the prison and sentenced the suffragists to from seven to ten days close solitary confinement. The women were then all dragged away to the punishment cells. Miss Florence Spong, one of the prisoners, describes her experience thus. Entering a dim corridor on either side of which were cells, I was conducted to the last one, and the double iron doors were clanged and locked behind me. The cell, damp, icy cold, and dark, struck terror in me, but the principle for which I was fighting helped me to overcome my fears. In the dim light I discovered a plank bed fixed in one corner of the cell about four inches from the ground, with a wooden pillow at the head. Opposite was a tree stump, clamped to the wall for a seat, and in another corner was a small shelf, with a filthy rubber tumbler full of water. High above the bed was a small window, and through the tiny panes of opaque glass a faint light filtered. Realizing how quickly the light was waning, I hurriedly examined my cell. I discovered two pools of water near the head of the bed which never dried up. There was a small square of glass high above the door, and through this a light of a tiny gas jet flickered from the corridor outside. This was lit at five o'clock and just enabled me to see the objects in my cell. At eight o'clock three wardresses brought me a mattress and some rugs, and again the doors clanged too and I was alone. I will not speak of that night. I leave it for your imagination. At six the next morning I was told to get up, my mattress and bedclothes were taken from my cell, and a tiny bowl of water was brought me to wash in, 
and that was the only wash I was allowed every twenty-four hours. "'It is wrong that there should be such places today,' Miss Florence Cook told the governor. "'They would drive any ordinary prisoner mad. "'And she tells us, "'I saw all means of protest had been taken from me except one, "'and that was to do what Miss Wallace Dunlop had done, "'to refuse to take any food. "'The hardest time was the first twenty-four hours. "'Milk was brought to me which I felt I could have taken very willingly, "'but I put it from me. "'Then the wardress brought me in some food.' I said to her, Will you please take that out? She refused. I therefore took the tin in which the food was and rolled it out of the cell and what was in it went upon the ground. This is important because Mr. Gladstone afterwards charged the suffragettes with having thrown food at the wardresses. Miss Cook goes on. I was particularly careful in what I did to be polite and I believe all the other suffragettes were the same. On Friday I took to my bed, and the doctor told me that if I persisted I should get a fever, but I was absolutely determined to do my part at whatever sacrifice, and I told the governor that so long as I was responsible for my action I should refuse to take food. On Sunday night I was removed to the hospital, and there a fresh effort was made to get me to take food. Medicine was brought to me which I absolutely refused, knowing that it was either food in disguise or else intended to aggravate my hunger. On Monday afternoon my head felt exceedingly bad, and I hardly knew what I was doing, but I determined that I would not give in. In the evening the governor came to me and said, Be very calm. I said to him, There is a supreme power which gives us strength to bear whatever comes to us. He said, I have orders to release you. And I said to him, Does Mr. Gladstone prefer this to doing us justice? The other prisoners all told similar stories, each of which unconsciously displayed the most wonderful heroism. One day Miss Mary Allen fell fainting on the stone floor of her punishment cell, and when, weak and numb with cold, she regained consciousness, she sang the woman's Marseillaise to cheer herself, and to her delight the occupant of the next cell joined in. So, bravely struggling, each of the women won her way out to freedom, having fasted bravely, some for six and a half, others for six, five and a half, or five days. Think of the courage of it! To be confined there in semi-darkness when a word would procure release. To withstand the terrible pangs of hunger with food always before one's eyes, distracted by the fever of that unhealthy and fetid place to feel oneself growing gradually weaker and weaker, and to know that but a little more, perhaps suddenly, any moment without warning, and the heart will stop. And yet never, never to falter, always to cling on to the word of their faith, and the great impersonal ideal. Think of the wonderful courage of it. And after their release it was only with utmost care and cherishing that these dear women were won back to life, and in their feeble weariness they felt, even when lying on the softest bed, as though they were stretched upon iron bars. There were some generous souls, the Reverend Hugh Chapman of the Royal Chapel of the Savoy and others who raised their voices in protest, and in appeal to the authorities to withdraw their obstinate opposition to the cause for which the women fought, or at least to extend to them the recognized usages of political warfare. It was shown that even according to the strict letter of the law the women, their stone-throwing notwithstanding, had an unassailable claim to political treatment, in the case of N. R. Castioni, reported in Pitt Cobbett's Leading Cases on International Law, a Swiss subject named Castioni had been arrested in England at the requisition of the Swiss government on a charge of murder. 
Under the provisions of the Extradition Act of 1870, the prisoner could not be extradited if the offense was of a political character, and the judges unanimously held that even such offenses as murder and assassination must be considered political, if committed in the belief that they would promote the political end in view, and as part of, and incidental to, a genuine political agitation, rising, or disturbance. But the legal and moral justice of their claim and the heroic courage of the women were alike disregarded by the government, and when on July 21st private members of Parliament pressed Mr. Gladstone to relent, and to do justice to the women political prisoners, he retaliated by asserting that they had both kicked and bitten the wardresses. The charge was indignantly repudiated by every prisoner, and after careful inquiry, the WSPU issued a statement denying the accusations. Three days later it was announced by the press that Mr. Gladstone had held an inquiry at the prison as a result of which he had decided that the allegations of assault against the suffragette prisoners had been clearly proved. The WSPU then wrote urging that the case ought not to be judged on one-sided evidence and claiming that the Home Secretary should allow the fourteen suffragettes against whom the charges had been made to put their side of the matter before him. Mr. Gladstone merely replied that he had already directed proceedings to be taken against Miss Theresa Garnett and Mrs. Dove Wilcox, two of the suffragettes concerned, and that these proceedings would afford full opportunity for them to swear to their version of the facts before the court. On August 4th, these trumped-up charges were heard at the North London Police Court. During the whole course of the agitation, the suffragettes had never sought either to conceal or to deny what they had done, or to escape punishment for their actions, and the police had always readily admitted that they could unhesitatingly accept the word of a suffragette. It is unnecessary, therefore, to give at any length the evidence put forward at the trial of these two women. Their own statements, calmly and carefully given, even the magistrate, although he punished them, certainly believed. Miss Theresa Garnett was accused of biting one wardress and striking another. In defending herself against these charges, she said, On Wednesday, July 14th, wardresses entered my cell and ordered me to come down to see the visiting magistrates. I stopped to pick up my bag to bring with me. Note 36. Immediately the wardresses intervened between me and my bag to prevent me taking it, and a scuffle ensued, in the course of which I found myself on my back and two or three other wardresses came into my cell. In this struggle I did not strike or bite or assault any of the wardresses in any way, but used such force as I was able to put forth in order to regain possession of my property. One of the wardresses tore my dress, and it is quite likely that as I took hold of her, her dress became torn. I was then conducted to the head of the stairs, and seeing that further attempts to retain my property would be of no avail, I walked quietly down into the magistrate's room. When I was there, the charges of breach of prison discipline were made against me, and the matron further charged me with having torn the dress of one of the wardresses whilst I was being brought into the room, but no charge of biting the finger of the wardress was made against me. I was then asked whether I had any apology to make. I was sentenced to eight days' solitary confinement, and I made no resistance as I was marched away to a punishment cell. Since I learned that this charge was to be brought against me, I have been wondering how it could have arisen. I do not believe that the wardresses would purposely fabricate a charge against me. I am led, therefore, to suppose that this charge rests upon a mistake. You will have noticed, sir, that no charge of biting the wardress's finger was preferred against me in the presence of the visiting magistrates, whilst a charge of tearing the wardress's dress, which occurred at the same time that my other act is alleged to have happened, was reported to them then and there. 
I can only suppose, therefore, that this charge was an afterthought and that, finding a wound on her finger, the wardress concluded that it had been produced by a bite. Now, sir, I have dressed myself today exactly in the way which I was dressed that day in Holloway, and you will notice that I am wearing this port-colous brooch on my left side. At this Miss Garnett unbuttoned and took off the coat she was wearing, and the magistrate rudely said, I suppose you could bite as well in one dress as in another. I have already told you that my dress was torn, she went on. You will see that it is torn close to the brooch. I think it is exceedingly probable that the wardress who tore my dress received a wound in her finger from the brooch I was wearing, and this wound would exactly resemble the wound caused by a bite. Miss Garnett now unpinned the portcullis brooch, which, since April of that year, had been presented as a badge of honor to every member of the WSPU who had suffered imprisonment for the cause, and which, like a genuine portcullis, had five sharp little tooth-like projections at its base. "'Here is the brooch,' she said, handing it to the magistrate. "'You can look at it for yourself. "'I have only this to add, if, in spite of the true facts which I have narrated to you, you send me to prison on account of the charges which have been made against me.' I shall go there prepared to carry out afresh my protest against the treatment in prison. Mr. Fordham said that evidently there had been a great struggle, and that at such times it was difficult to say exactly what had taken place. He believed that the wound had been caused accidentally, though he thought it was more likely that the wardress's hand had been struck against Miss Garnet's teeth than that the wound had been caused by the brooch. He therefore dismissed the case, but though Miss Garnett had been acquitted of this charge, Mr. Gladstone never retracted the statements which he had made in Parliament as to the suffragette prisoners having bitten the wardresses. As soon as this first case against Miss Garnett had been disposed of, a second charge of striking one of the wardresses was preferred against her. She then said, on the day following that on which the visiting magistrates came to Holloway, the wardress entered my cell and ordered me to get up off the bed. I did not do so, and she seized hold of the bedding and rolled me onto the floor, injuring my knee. I then said to her, Is this what you do? And she said, It is. I said to her, In a civilized country. And she said, You are a set of uncivilized women. I then asked her to leave the cell, and she refused to do so, whereon I pushed her without using any unnecessary violence out of the cell. Later in the day she was exceedingly insolent to me in her behavior, and she further reported me to the governor and I was moved into a more severe punishment cell. I informed the governor of the manner in which she had treated me, and from that time onwards her behavior was marked by ordinary courtesy. Mr. Fordham then sentenced Miss Garnett to a month's imprisonment in the third division. After this, two charges were also brought against Mrs. Dove Wilcox of Bristol, who was accused of having kicked several of the wardresses, both whilst she was being taken from the cell to the visiting magistrate's room and on the way to the punishment cell afterwards. To the first charge she returned an absolute denial, saying that when summoned to appear before the magistrate she had gone quietly and willingly, and that when she had been charged before them no attempt had been made to suggest that she had assaulted any of the wardresses. She was sentenced to eight days' close confinement in a punishment cell, but as she explained, I refused to accept this treatment and said that if they insisted I should have to be dragged away by force. Several wardresses accordingly seized me to take me away. I offered such resistance as I was able to but was overpowered. Outside the room, some of the wardresses commenced to pummel me very severely, inflicting serious bruises upon me, and at last I deliberately kicked two of them. 
I had on a pair of thin house shoes at the time because, as you know, we had insisted upon our right to retain our own clothing, so that I could not have hurt either of them very much. They then picked me up and carried me to the cell, and on the way treated me very cruelly, twisting my arms, almost throttling me, and tearing at my hair with great violence. I remonstrated with them, saying, You have no right to treat me in this way, and I shall complain to the governor of this cruelty. They carried me into the cell and threw me roughly onto the wooden bed, taking away my shoes, which they did not return for some time. At first I determined to complain to the governor and to show him the bruises on my arms, but on consideration I remembered that my quarrel was with the government and not with the wardresses. I did not wish them to get into trouble. Moreover, I regarded the incident as closed, as I heard nothing of any complaint as to my action. I consider I was perfectly justified in what I did, and that anyone with arms pinioned, assaulted as I was, would have taken similar action. The magistrate refused to accept Mrs. Dove Wilcox's denial of the charge of kicking the wardresses on her way to the visiting magistrate's room, but said that it was not of a very serious kind, and that he would sentence her to pay a fine of forty shillings or go to prison for ten days. He also found her guilty of the second charge of kicking the wardresses on being removed from the visiting magistrate's room, and sentenced her to pay a further forty shillings or to go to prison for ten days. If she suffered imprisonment, the two terms were to run concurrently, that is to say she would serve ten days in all. As she had already stated that she would not pay any fine, this was tantamount to punishing her for one of the charges only. The two women were still weak from their first hunger strike, but they determined to again make the same stand. On their arrival at Holloway, the officials forcibly stripped their clothes from their backs, flung the prison garments upon them, and forced them into the punishment cells, where, in spite of the continual faintness from which they suffered, they steadfastly refused all food until Saturday, August 7th, the third day of their imprisonment, when the order of release was brought. Footnotes 35 it was afterwards brought back to Clement's Inn by a stranger who found it still unopened. 36. In this bag, Miss Garnett had a change of clothing and other necessaries, and she realized that if this were taken from her, her determination not to wear the prison garments would be frustrated. End of chapter 19